Hello. I am excited. I'm excited. I'm excited because we are in episode three of Super Women Can with Samantha. Now I'm dead excited because, as usual, I have brought along an amazing guest. But before I do that, I want to let you know that Super Women Can is all about smashing past all those negative narratives that we have about ourselves, what society tell us as women of color, we're going to smash past them and we're going to create successful lives for us for professionally, personally. If you're a mother, we want to be really embracing that and going to be successful with all the advice that we get from our guest speakers. So today I have I have a new Ogunbulu. Am I saying your name right? Ogunbulu. You won't believe I've known her for over 20 years and I still struggle to say some names. I know that you're giving me much love here. Heart. So I want to say, first of all, that Anu is absolutely incredible. Her journey of transformation, success, just keeps getting better and better. And she defines the odds every single time. Now, if you really want to be set up for success and you really want to know how you can do that, you need to be really watching this, this lady of success right here. She changes the narrative each and every time. Are you ready for this? Now, I'm not going to give it too much away. So I'm going to give her the honor, the sweet honor of introducing herself. And I want to remind you, this is episode three. So if you're a dedicated follower, well done to you. Welcome. Hey, you. I don't know how I'm going to follow up that amazing intro. You are just way too kind. Thank you. I just want to say before I go on that Samantha has been my greatest advocate through 20 years. I can't believe 20 years that we've known each other. And she's always been my cheerleader. She's always advocated for women, advocated for her friends. There's nothing that she wouldn't do for them. And I really attribute everything that I have done, every, everywhere I've got to, really to just being your friend. Even um, when she asked me to be on this podcast, she had to tell me that I'm amazing. I don't believe I am. <laughs> I'm always my harshest critic. But as long as you have friends or people or acquaintances like Samantha, just standing by the sidelines, cheering you on, there's really nothing that you can't achieve. So oh, wow. Woo-hoo. Oh, I, I'm so touched <laughs> right now. Seriously. I'm Mutual love. Get, like actually go full on crying here. Oh. I if I think of what we've gone through, it's just love. Oh, we could just result oh. in tears. Let's do that. We've taken our time to do our makeup. We're fabulous women. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There's probably yeah. going to be a lot of episodes with you in it because the journey that we have been on it has been awesome. But this is about you, my dear. So tell me more about yourself. Okay, my name is Anu Ogunbolu. And uh, I would say that my road hasn't been the most direct and the straightest. I've been through quite a bit of stuff. As we as women of colour, we know we have to constantly just prevail in everything that we do. We are so used to having to be 10 times better to just even be seen on almost an equal footing to everybody else. My start to life was 
a bit unconventional. I was placed into foster care until the age of 10. Now this was voluntary. This was something that my mum did for me and my sister because she was a first generation Nigerian to move to England. And because she was first generation, she was the oldest in her family. She had to work and grind two part-time jobs and she just couldn't lug me and my sister around, wake us up like the crack of dawn, take us to care, bring us back, it was just unfair on us. So she made the very brave and very selfless decision to place us into voluntary foster care. So I lived with foster parents, with my sister until about the age of 10. Uh, during this time, my mom would work 13 days in a row, come and stay with us on the 14th day, do her hair, spend Christmases with us, would come and stay with her during the summer for the few weeks that she had off. She really dedicated herself to her kids and sending money back home to her family. So she really is a woman that I just aspire to be every single day. When my sister and I were old enough to become latchkey kids, I'm sure most of us know what latchkey kids are, you know, we're able to. <laughs> so that means that we were old enough to be able to take ourselves to school in the morning, bring ourselves back, have a key, let ourselves okay. in and just, just feed ourselves until our mom, moms were able to come back from work. And it's not a unique story in that respect because I feel a lot of colour, especially growing up in the 80s, 90s, that was just something that we did. It wasn't a huge thing. My mom, because of her, the amount that she had to work, she was not, did not have the opportunity to go to university, even though she's smart as a whip absolutely smart. She worked part-time 14 hours a day so that she could send all her six siblings back home to university, which she did. So I really didn't in this country have anybody to look up to in terms of that schooling aspect. So I didn't really have role models in that respect. And because my dad wasn't around, he died when I was 17 and I, and he was in Nigeria until then. I never even met him, I recall. I was essentially the man of my house. So from a very young age, from 13, I had to learn all those things, changing light bulbs and changing batteries and all those things that you don't really usually tend to do back then. I was a man of my house and I helped my mum. I did my thing with my mum. And I always knew I was going to go to university, which I did, but I studied a course that wasn't really appropriate for me, I don't think. I was smart, but very lazy, I'll be honest. I just really just floated through, didn't really study, got good grades and was just satisfied with that. I briefly considered doing medicine, but then I realised it was going to be hard, so I gave up <laughs> on it. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> settled on biochemistry because one of my friends was doing biochemistry and I settled on the University of Manchester because one of my friends was going there and but then it was a course I disliked quite early on but because I wasn't entitled to student support I wasn't entitled to a student loan I had to work pretty much full-time whilst I was in university and my biochemistry course was very grueling. It was one that was literally five days a week. We didn't have any half days, we were in labs. The first year I went to uni, I worked in a bar. No, the first year I went to uni, I was working in W.A. Smith. Second year, I started working in a bar that was robbed at gunpoint on my second night in Manchester. Did I never tell you that? Like literally. I <laughs> we're gonna I'll let you carry on we're gonna come back to some of these like highlights go for it keep going yeah it was just before I started on Barclays which is where um Samantha and I met yeah it was robbed at Gun it was Aqua Bar on Deansgate Locks robbed at gunpoint my second night 
but I was honestly so broke I had to go back until I landed a agency job which is where I met Miss Samantha Bailey as she was called back then and it was while I was I gained an appreciation for we worked in debt collections it's not as seedy as it sounds it was actually a very it was an eye-opener because it really gave whoever worked there just really fresh perspective on what happens if you don't manage your finances the way you should especially we came across a lot of students who really were just living the party life and was running into debt I had to work that that job was very cool it was 24 hours a week if I recall we worked yeah. uh, 5 p.m to 9 p.m Monday to Friday 10 a.m to 2 p.m on a Saturday and whenever there was Sunday overtime we used to work 12 hours on Saturday on Sundays as well as full-time courses yeah and yeah it was tough it was tough but it gave me that ability to be able to multitask to be able to do whatever it takes to get wherever I needed to get to because my grades really slipped in the second year when I started that job but I was able to turn it around and I graduated with a 2-1 which was absolutely amazing. But then I was stuck with, okay, I have a biochemistry degree. I don't want to work in a lab. What do I do now? I wasn't ready. So I took on another job and another job. And I ended up being, I think, about 10 years, almost 10 years, eight years, until I was working in corporate finance. And I was, uh, there came a point where I was expecting my daughter, Talani. I have a 13-year-old. And after I came back from maternity leave, I just wasn't satisfied with that job anymore. I had a new boss in the time that I'd left and she was pretty horrendous. The work-life balance wasn't very conducive for me because I remember a specific incident that really killed me. I had arranged that I would work from 8.30 to, I think, 4 p.m. every day, skipping my lunch so that I could get back in time to pick my daughter up from the babysitter. And I remember after dropping her off first thing in the morning, I used to run for the um, for the train to get into work at 8.30, log on. And then after a couple of, start working, and after a couple of months, my boss had the audacity. I didn't realize it was audacious at that point. She was cheeky to front me <laughs> and tell me that when I'm working from 8.30, I should be at my computer from 8.30, not walking through the door. And I remember at that point, I burst into tears because it was so overwhelming being a single parent, really trying your hardest to do show up in all aspects and just be told that you fall short. And I wouldn't have stood for that type of talk today, to be quite honest, but things have changed, which is good. So the opportunity for voluntary redundancy came up. I took it. So at the age of 29, I was made redundant. And I would say that was actually the start of um, just an acceleration in my career. So I know people do fear redundancy. It's not a fun thing. It's not a nice thing. But I have actually been made redundant twice in my life. And they have all just been accelerating steps. So I then started working for a Japanese bank. And I moved from credit risk into operational risk, a risk area that I've never been familiar with before. But my boss, she's an amazing person, Yuki Kataoka, she <laughs> interviewed me. She interviewed me. She, they offered me the job and she admitted to me that I was actually a wild card applicant. So they like to choose some surefire applicants and then just a wild card applicant who I knew nothing about operational risk. I barely knew the definition, but she just said she saw something in me that she just thought that I had the, the attributes that she was looking for. And I had a great career there, five years in Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi. Um, I found myself, again, 
feeling a bit unsettled, feeling a bit, feeling a bit lost at that point because I just couldn't see where my career was going to go. So I made a decision to do an MBA, which I did. I did an executive MBA and yep, I did an executive MBA with Cass Business School. And I had asked my company for support for my MBA and they were not going to give me support. Uh, They weren't going to give me any hours. They weren't going to give me any funds towards it. They weren't going, yeah, they just weren't very supportive. And I think things came to a head in Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi when I, the person above me, my manager was actually moved on. I think they got promoted above, so it left in a vacuum above me. And I'd been asked to help recruit for their replacement. I was recruiting and in the interviews, when we were interviewing these people, I realized I'm just as good as these people. I'm as smart as them. I know more than them. I'm going to apply for the job. And this was also backed up with confidence I had from my MBA, where they really taught you not just business, but also how to promote yourself, how to actualize yourself, identify your skills and play to them. I spoke to my managers from two levels above me, the person I was interviewing with, and just asked, was I never considered for the role or offered the role? And he told me that he would have thought that if I wanted it, I would have applied for it. So I told him, I'm not going to be helping sitting in any more interviews because I'm going to interview for the role. And at which point I put in my application for the role. Then I got a, an, a calendar invite from HR that was, I can't remember what it said, but it was very obscure. It was almost like interview for, I didn't understand what it was. It was just a very strange calendar invite where I was invited to discuss the role. I went into, um, I, I went to the meeting and my boss was there or my boss was there and HR was just starting to fire these questions at me as if it was an interview. It was very strange. And she even had to stop herself halfway through and say, oh, I feel like I'm interviewing you. I'm like, yeah, me too. I was not prepared. I don't know what this is about. So we went through that whole debacle only for them to then send me an email a couple of days later to tell me that I was not good enough to interview for the job that I had been interviewing other people for people that I knew better than, but I had some weird interview to tell me that I wasn't good enough to interview. And uh, that just, oh oh my God. And that was it for me. So I thought, okay, it's fine. I'll just, and I looked for another job. And then I ended up interviewing for Rayfalls Bank, which was a small private bank in in that city centre, city, London city. And it was offering me twice as much money. And I went to an interview, the interview at 3 p.m., and the next day, 11 a.m., they offered me the job. I just had one interview. Oh, that's amazing. They offered me the job. I know. It was just really surreal. I was almost ready to turn it down because I was thinking, so you're just interviewing people off the streets. You're just giving people jobs. <laughs> and I just goes to... Pardon? That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it goes to my confidence level, to be fair. my confidence. I'm thinking, you people, I don't know if I want to be... I don't want to work for you guys because you clearly have no filtering process. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> when I did join um pardon you've seen your abilities and skills that's it when I did join the girl who reported into me told me that they had been interviewing for months and um yeah and so Tony my boss he knew what he wanted and he saw me and I will tell you working with Tony Pooley from Rayfalls Bank he was absolutely amazing he just everything I did it was like it was a piece of gold. He advocated for me. 
he supported me. He took he took my work into his meetings. I prepare work for, for their committee meetings, their board meetings. And the person who actually took the minutes for those meetings was a close friend of mine. And she just kept telling me, Tony loves you. He's just in these meetings. He's talking up your work. He never takes credit for your work. He tells, tells people I'm much smarter than him. And he just really boosted me. So that gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah, so... Unfortunately, Rayfield's bank wound down. I think even as they took me on, they were winding down, but they did actually offer me a substantial retainer to stay until they wound down. I was one of the last people there. And even though I knew it was coming, when they finally called me in to say that they no longer needed me, I, I remember just, just thanking Tony and just bursting into tears. And then the HR lady was there, was crying. Tony looked like he wanted to cry. And I was like, I'm not crying because I'm not crying because I'm made redundant. I just, I just really appreciate everything you've done. At that point, I made the decision to move to America to further my career there with my daughter at that point. So I moved to America. I met who was the man who used to be my husband. And then unfortunately, moving on to be my ex-husband now, the father of my two-year-old son, Kai. A couple of months after moving to America, I secured a job with Verizon working as a risk manager in a supply chain office where I still am currently. I had my son in 2020 and I'll be honest it's been a bit of a rough road since then. My son has been diagnosed with a genetic disorder that is quite devastating. It's not very well known. Yeah it's called happy angelman syndrome but people know it's happy baby syndrome and it's characterized by a very characteristic laugh. He's always happy, never cries, hardly ever cries, um, but it does come with severe developmental delays and such. I'm managing that at the moment. So he has lots of physiotherapy. I think he's in therapy six times a week. He's two and a half almost. He's not yet walking, but he has started. He's rolling. He's starting to army crawl. He's starting to run me ragged now. So I'm just thankful so much for that. He's not talking yet. 80% of Angelman children don't walk. Or talk but he's showing signs that he's just defying the odds every day he just shows me every day that he's working his hardest to defy genetics so my prayer for him is that he just continues to thrive so that's where it's working mothering therapy sessions my daughter is absolutely amazing she's thriving in school she's in the top classes and she's just taking after her nana so that's I know that's quite a lot a bit of a whistle-stop tour <laughs> of, of my life Wow. Oh, anyone watching, I am pretty sure they are extremely impressed by your resilience, your vigor, just the way that you've shown up. And she really fluffs this bit part up because you are extremely successful in what you do, especially by UK standards. You have literally arrived several times over, in fact, and you're on an astounding amount in UK pounds. The dollar to the pound situation is ridiculous. But even still, that you are you are very successful. And you're very successful. And with looking after Tolani, your daughter, who's the 13-year-old now, going on 21, I'm sure. And yeah. I, who is, like you said, astounding odds. And my heart just melted because you're you're doing so much, but you're still showing up and going through a lot. I want to just go back because I really didn't want to interrupt what you were saying because it was just so amazing, like literally. And I'm absolutely dead on sure that all the listeners are just like glued to what's going to what we're going to talk about next. 
I'm going to go right back because I remember you saying about university, you were the first to go to university, really reminded me of myself because I only thought white people went to university. And when <laughs> I remember when I said to my mum, no, seriously, I didn't know anyone. So I don't know anyone. And I know in Nigeria, and she, your mother funded every single person to go to university. So it would be more of its expectation. I remember my family, it was an expectation because no one went. And I remember my mum laughing, no, me laughing, when my mum said, you go in uni, that's for white people. And she's like, what? I was like, who do, else do you know that goes to university? Because I don't know anyone. I don't know no one, who? And then the next day she said, me. And went back to, got, went on an access course, the year later she was in university, she showed me the way. So the fact that you had this kind of, challenge in sense of your mum has taken so many people through university there is a high expectation on you how did you navigate that for me it was just natural even though I didn't have actually let me take let me wind a bit so just to um, buff out the details a bit my sister and I both went to university the same year that's because I did an extra year of college I've spent the first year playing pool so I didn't <laughs> do that well. so I did college so I redid the first year um, <laughs> I thought that was fun and the second year of uni, my mom actually went to uni herself, actually. So she graduated at the age of 15. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, so she went to uni. Yeah. Navigating that is hard because Nigerians are very, Nigerian parents are very specific, very strict. They've pushed you very hard. I remember um, specifically that I, uh, when we did our SATs, I got like, the highest level in SATs across maths and English, the highest I could, could attain. And um, I did it almost like a GCSE SAT from, for English. I got like, one of the highest scores. Maths, the highest scores. My science, I got, I think I got a level six out of seven. And my mom was like, so why didn't you get a level seven in science? My mom was, she never, and one thing I've even said to her, she never ever celebrated any of my wins. She would always zone in on that one thing that I missed, and that would be her talking point. And that actually caused me to do the same to myself. I always felt like I was no better than my worst grade. I was no better than my worst experience. I was no better than my worst act. And that's something that really, I didn't really realize until I was studying my MBA. So I remember when I was studying my MBA, I was so focused on getting a distinction. Everybody, I had people there who were so much smarter than me, were like, I just want to get my MBA, I don't care about it. Just to have those numbers, I'm like, no, I have to get a distinction. I have to get a distinction. And they would just ask me, but why? And I was like, it made me really think and think why. And I'm like, because that's what, that's a level I was always held to. I was always held to that level. If it's not a distinction, it's nothing else. It really isn't. And uh, so that was very hard on me. That was very hard for me. And it's still something that I do still struggle against because I don't see myself as anything special. I feel that there's always people that are doing better than me and I don't compare myself to other people, but I am. I know I'm my worst, my, I'm, I'm my worst critic. I need to give myself a break. And just finding that has also kind of made me very sensitive about doing that to my own children. So. With Tolani, she comes back with amazing grades. She's getting like 99%, 97%, 96%. And I remember that in her English, when she first came to the States, her English was like 99% the first semester. Then it went down to 96%. Then it went down to 94%, 92%. Those are still amazing grades, but I'm like, 
why are they dropping that was my concern but what I always do and I always make sure I do is that I spend a day celebrating how amazing she's done on everything else and you've done absolutely well. so proud of you let's go do something nice let's celebrate and then after she's had that time to feel good I was like okay you're doing amazingly but I just want to identify what is it on these that you feel that you can do better? What is it that you feel you can do better? Because I feel that you're dropping here and what's going on. And even when she comes back to me and she says she had a test, she doesn't know she did it any very well. I tell her, did you do your best? Did you honestly put your heart, your hardest into it? Then it's fine because the only person you're in competition with is yourself. Absolutely. And that's the example I gave her when I was addressing her raise. I'm like, Tolani, I'm looking at you. And if you're getting 99% here and I can see each semester you're dropping, what is going on? Because you know you can do better. Like I said, that's something I really try to just address with her. I still want her to obtain excellence. I don't want her to sit back on the fact that things come easy. She still has to push herself. But I don't want to take away that good, that feel-good feeling wow. because it's a hard thing to get back. Yeah, I think you're an inspiration as a parent, as a mother, most definitely. And what did you get in your MBA? Just out of curiosity. I I didn't expect anything less and again it it really just resonates with me in terms of for me your expectation was distinction and I remember I I have any expectations no one had any expectation of me like I it was like the opposite like just get by because no one else had the the opportunity my mum went and I remember when I went to university I just kept thinking how do you get these good marks? And I remember I was getting C's and then yeah, let's just try and get higher marks. And then I realized that I could get distinctions. And I was like, oh, it's there's a process to this. There's a system. Yeah. As long as you get the system, you can achieve. And then from there, it was like a catalyst for me. I just started getting distinction after distinction. And then that was my, that was what I expected to get. And I kept pushing myself to that standard. I didn't know anyone else that had that standard. No one was pushing me. They were just happy I could do it. And once I understood that system, I was telling everyone else, it's easy to get distinctions. Let me tell you how you do it. And it was easy to get distinctions. What? So for me, and I know it sounds really weird because anyone else who hasn't had distinctions will think it was not easy. But for me, it was understanding what the process is. And as a person who later found out I was dyslexic and I need systems and processes, that was my break. That was my point where it was a breakthrough for me. So your achievement is amazing. Like just being able to hold yourself to that account is amazing. Now you had, there's two girls in your family and you're the one that was looking after everyone. You were like the mother, you're the, what your mom, you were the equivalent of your mom basically. And you also had a brother, I know. <laughs> so how, I know you said that you were the DIY person in my family. This is where I kind of unconscious biases come up for me because I had an older brother and a second brother. I didn't know DIY. I did not know how to change a tire. And I still don't know how to change a tire. I never took bins out because that was a man's job as far as my mum was concerned. I never had to paint because that was a man's job. I did have to cook though. So there was very clear, even though my mum was also a single mother, it was very clear lines on what a woman did, what a man did. And I hated it (laughs) because I didn't want to cook. I wanted to learn those kind of mangoes mantle work shall we call them tell me about that tell me how that was different in your home I think we didn't have the I suppose there was no other option and we didn't have a man in the house so all these things I had to learn myself because otherwise my mom did her best she and I took the lead from my mom because my mom she would put furniture together 
to change light bulbs. So I just learned and I took over. I'd hang shelves, I'd hang cabinets, I'd do, because we, we had no other choice. But my brother is 13 years younger than me. So I couldn't hang around and wait for him to get things done. Changing tires, just, I just decided one day to change my tire. My tire was flat. <laughs> so I changed it. I've changed my tire multiple times. I always have, I never have very much luck in tires. I've changed tires in high heels, wearing my church clothes <laughs> in the rain. You know what I'm saying? I've had people. So I know how to change a tire. That's what I'm very proud of. And I taught my daughter from the age of nine, taught her how to change a tire. Driving, for example, nobody drove in the family. I was the first person to drive and at the age of 17. And then when I reached 21 and I was legally able to, I taught my mom how to drive. And I taught my little brother how to drive. I even taught my nine-year-old daughter how to drive. So she actually knows how to drive a, what we call here, a, a stick shift. But in the UK, she drives, she you know, she knew how to drive a manual car. So these are all skills that just are learned by necessity. And, and that's my, my catchphrase or thing that I, the phrase that I use to explain anything is, is capacity born of necessity. So it's something that I needed to do. So I had to do it and I learned to do it. And if I'm honest, it has caused a, when you talk about roles, it has caused a lot of friction in relationships because everybody has, especially in our time, I say as if we're very old, specific gender roles. And when partners feel that you're encroaching on that role, or you don't need them to fulfill that role for them, it causes a strange dynamic to the relationship. So it's hard and it does affect you in that respect. Even my husband, when it came to putting furniture together, he refused to do it. He preferred to buy it fully assembled or hire someone to do it. And I'm like, I can just put it together in like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. The most complex piece of IKEA furniture, I think is a sliding door for a wardrobe, a wardrobe with a sliding door. And I've done that a few times. These are just things, like I said, capacity born of necessity. If you have no other option, what are you going to do except do it right and that's always been my philosophy if it needs to be done you just do it you learn and now we have youtube so i never learned <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know how to change a tire and uh, i'd I'll love show you to show me one day yeah but you live in the part of the world i'm in the uk you're in america now and yeah. uh, yeah and I think that I can understand that as women and especially as black women one of the things that we get known for is we have to be this strong woman all the time and we do end up going into our masculine energy a lot because of that instead of being in our natural feminine energy and that is totally understandable especially coming from single for me I was from a single mother home and even though there was clear defined roles I see my mum still do a lot, so I can completely relate to that. Just for the interest for the interest of time, I really want to get to you held you held at the gunpoint. Like I am yeah. not skipping that. Like literally, you kind of skip that. But tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I was working in a bar called Aqua Bar. I don't, it's not there anymore. It's on Dean's Gate Locks. Yeah, I know, right? Like I said, I funded myself for uni. So I needed a job and that was what I could get at the time. So the second, uh, second day of work, I remember we were just cleaning up at the end of the night and I just had a bit of commotion. I don't even know, just, I heard just some man's acting in my Mancunian accents. And these guys came in with balaclavas. I can't remember how many of them, maybe three of them. And they had guns and they told us to lay down on the floor. And in my head, I was just thinking on this dirty floor, oh my God, just, I was really, <laughs> I, my my mind was, I was not thinking about, it. you know me, I'm a germaphobe. I'm like, on this nasty floor, I was not happy. So we laid down on the floor and then <laughs> one of the guys, 
bust into the back room where the manager at the time was counting out the day's takings. They stole the takings and they left. And I was just praying. There's a security guard off me. I'm like, just don't do nothing. Just pray. Don't do nothing. Just let them take the money. It's not worth it. I'm not ready to die here for a couple of hundred pounds. It's not going to happen. So the guys escaped, but they were caught, I think, a day later because they drove their own car. They were just really, they just really bungled it as far as I could. Not that I'm sure I could do better if I really wanted to, but it was a scary situation. And I was literally so broke. I still went back the next week. I still went back the next week. I went back for the next couple of weeks until I landed the job at Barclays and I was able to just say bye. And wow, what a story. And that's just really your introduction. <laughs> so I think you are so inspirational. And I feel like, what can you tell me what advice you would give for other women of colour, like just to gain the success and overcome so much uh, adversity? I would say just don't listen to what society tells you can and cannot do. You deserve to be heard. You deserve to have your own platform. And just remember, you are the central character. You are the lead character of your own story. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. One of the things I did struggle with, especially early in my career, was being able to stand up for myself, be assertive without being seen as aggressive, without being seen as street, without just having that clear work persona and it didn't do me for any favors in a bit at all so what I just learned is that just be yourself be yourself show up every day and just don't just be unapologetically you that's all I can say because you have the skills you, you know what you're doing you just need to just rely on that and think more like a man I would say because I remember being told that when men go for job interviews that when women are looking at job descriptions, they look at the description and say, okay, I can do that. No, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that. But when men look at job descriptions, they're like, yeah, I'll be able to do that. I'll be able to do that. I can maybe do that. I'll learn how to do that. And that's what they apply based on. And that's what we need to do. We need to just be a lot more daring, a lot more fearless, and a lot more aspirational in what we do. I love that you said that. Yeah, definitely fearless, definitely. And especially you showed that you actually, you've had to overcome imposter syndrome a lot in your life and probably still encounter it on a daily basis, but you still show up and unapologetically you. I absolutely love that. Now, I can't really not talk about that. You Not only are you successful in your career, but you are embarking on setting up not just one, but two businesses tell us a little bit about your new ventures i can't I'll give away too much because i haven't launched yet but one of them is really focused around women and basically giving them the tools and the advice they need to enjoy all aspects of their life to just free themselves to feel satisfied in everything they do pardon the pun you'll understand when it does come when i do actually launch and the second one is focused around children just really giving our youth the tools that they need to be successful, to be able to safeguard their future and to be able to build up the generational wealth for the generational wealth that up until this point is only been reserved for people who are not of colour. Let's just put it like that. I'm very excited about those two. And uh, oh, white people. <laughs> he said not of colour. It makes sense people not, not of colour. You mean just white, white people? people. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, one fun I just I I actually found out. Sorry to interrupt you. Is that um, 
only 2% of stocks on the stock market are owned by black people. Black people only own 2% of stocks and shares. Wow. That is very interesting. And we are the global majority. We're the global majority in to Europeans. We're not global majority in terms of the world, but yes, we are the global majority as black people. We own 2% of the stocks. It's quite stark, isn't it? So I am, yeah, I'm just amazed by your inspiration. I absolutely love this episode already. And I wanted to ask you something really personal really here. After everything you learn everything you gained if you were to just write yourself like a letter for 10 years time what were the key things that you would actually say that's a good question I would say you did it you identified what you wanted you aspired to a dream and you achieved it and I'm just so proud of you and if I had known 10 years ago (laughs) where I would be 10 years from now, I would take things a lot easier and it'd be a lot easier on myself and really enjoy the ride. Wow, I love that. So do you hear, you've heard it here first, enjoy the ride. I think that the advice you've given, the tips you've given yourself, you definitely need to keep going. You are an inspiration. You do need to follow a new, follow her now. What She just goes from success to success and she's a catalyst for others. You follow her now when that business launches or the businesses launch because it's two, you're going to be incredibly amazed and you're going to want to get involved in what she's doing. For those who are watching today, can you tell them, anyone that's watching and skip to the end, like, oh, what's this all about? Can you tell, give us some information about what was the top highlights in this episode? The top highlights? Oh, you mean me talking yeah. about myself? You, but you, come on, girl. Oh. <laughs> okay, so... I am a successful mother of two, raising two amazing children, one of whom is a son with special needs. I have been so blessed to be able to do certain things in my life that even married people or non-single parent mothers have been able to do. And I'm in the process of launching two businesses and a YouTube channel. So I say, watch your space. Pray for me (laughs) and uh, hopefully I'll just see you guys at the top. Yay. So you heard that here. See you at the top. And that is exactly where all our women of colour are heading. There is nothing that's going to stop you. You are going to be on fire. If you're not already on fire, let's light that fuel, get you heading in the right direction. We're so delighted that you were on Superwomen Can today, Anu. And we are definitely going to invite you back again and see where you are when that business launches. And thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Superwomen Can episode three. I will see our dedicated followers, same time, same place for episode four. Thank you.